I became aware that in the first service, I didn't think this through. Um, if you have children here, I don't see any, but they could be small children. I just want to let you know I'm going to reveal deep secrets about Christmas that you may not want your child to know. We always stipulate that this is our adult service, and we urge parents to take their children to our wonderful, wonderful, extraordinary children's ministries down the hall or student ministries over there, because I'm going to reveal deep, dark secrets about Christmas you may not want your child to know. Uh, having said that, <laughs> anyway, here we go. <laughs> it's 72 hours. 72 hours away from Christmas, depending on how you look at when Christmas starts. And um, I can remember when, you know, my kids were really little, and probably some of you have little kids, and uh, maybe you, like me, can remember when your kids were little, and they would get so excited waiting. And, and literally the, the night before, they would be in a frenzy where they couldn't hardly get to sleep. You know, they would be so, so excited about waiting. Now, back in you know, my day, I'm old school, I'm vintage guy, you know. So we had a different way of doing Christmas than the way it's done today. We, in fact, we had kind of this formula. We had this formula that like, you know, you got one or two, what we would call in those days, big gifts. And then you just kind of filled the floor with a lot of what you call little gifts. It, 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 was, it was, this was the scene back in my day, vintage days was like that. <laughs> Yeah, we, we did it, man. Um, now, some of the big items in those days, get little Larry some Tonka trucks. You get little, little Larry sees a Tonka truck or two under that tree, little Larry's a happy camper. A little, little Lulu, you get her Barbie, some Barbie houses, some Barbie stuff. Don't you get little Larry, little Lulu, that stuff today. No, 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 no. They will not be merry for Christmas. This is what you must get them today. <laughs> little Larry, little Lulu want Pro Max iPhone 11. And you may be thinking, but my son, little Larry, will drop it in the toilet, but have no fear because you bought the insurance plan for just such occasions. <laughs> By the way, we could get away for about 300 bucks. Man, you could look like you were extraordinary, you know, at Christmas time. That thing is $1,100 to start with. Some of you know it only too well. And little Larry and little Lulu can't be the only first graders that don't have a Pro Max iPhone 11. <laughs> don't you do that and scar their little souls. They'll be in, you know, psychological counseling for life if you don't get them that iPhone Pro Max 11. <laughs> Waiting. Most of us would acknowledge we don't like waiting. We're creatures of time. We know our time is limited. We don't like waiting in traffic. We don't like waiting for restaurants. We don't like waiting for anything for the most part. So waiting is one of these phenomenons that we don't like, but we also accept to a degree because we know that it's inevitable. When you come to Christmas and you find the people of God, the human race, the nation of Israel in particular, you find that it's been a big wait, a big wait before what we call Christmas. So to get you kind of in a frame of mind to understand what this might have felt like to the people that were literally there the first Christmas event, let's look at a portion of scripture to get us started. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul 
writing to followers of Christ in the city of Galatia, he says, but when the right time finally came, you're going to see what finally means in a minute. When the right time finally came, God's got a timetable, God's timetable and my timetable do not usually match up. I want it now, God sometimes says wait. But when the time finally came, God sent his own son, he came as the son of a human mother and he lived under the Jewish law. What, what did finally came mean? Where was the very first hint, the very first promise that this mysterious personage, this this deliverer, this rescuer, this one that was going to fix everything that had gone wrong, where did the first promise or the first hint that this event, we call it Christmas now, was going to take place? Well, you can go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. This is right after Adam and Eve, the first humans, had been deceived by Satan, Lucifer, the Nakash, whatever you want to call him. He had deceived them. He slandered God. He said that God was not worthy to be trusted. And they believed in it. And so God addressed Adam and Eve, sought to restore them. But then God spoke directly to Satan. Now, this is amazing to me because it shows that Satan had the audacity to hang around after he had deceived Adam and Eve. He was not afraid at all. And so God speaks directly to him. He says, I will put enmity, which is open hostility, between you and the woman and between your seed, offspring, and her seed, her seed, Mary was a virgin. It was her seed. He, the son that she would give birth to, he shall fatally bruise your head. He's speaking to Satan. He's saying this seed, this son that's going to be born, is going to fatally break his, his plans. And you shall only bruise his heel. That's describing what happened in the crucifixion. So we don't know the date. You know, here, here's a loose date down here. It really could have been 10,000, 12,000 years ago. We don't know. But what I'm trying to get at you is that the first promise to humanity that someone was going to come and set things right, rescue us, fix things, because you know and I know things are not the way they should be. The world is not the place that you want it to be. Your life is not what you want it to be, nor is mine or anyone else that's ever lived. There's always a lot of room for improvement. But the first promise came way back then. Just wait, just wait. It's going to happen. Let's go further. Let's go forward. Now God forms a nation. The nation of Israel, around 1450 B.C., roughly, he forms them. Here is God speaking through Moses. He's given this promise again. I will raise up a prophet like you, meaning like Moses, from among their relatives, and I will place my words in his mouth so that, they may, so that he may expound everything. Notice there's going to be an, an amplification. Moses gave to the people of uh, God some understanding of God's will and ways to the world, some understanding of God's will and ways, but someone's going to come, a prophet's going to come that's going to expound everything. Here's this promise, messianic promise, promise of the Christ, promise of somebody who's going to fix everything, tell us the whole truth about God and the whole truth about life so that we don't fumble around in darkness, hurting ourselves and hurting one another, but that we can enter into light. But that's 1450, uh, 1423 B.C., the nation formed around 1450 B.C. Let's go on. Now, 732 B.C., He's, they're still waiting. It's been who knows how many years. If Genesis goes back 10, 12,000 years, they've been waiting 10, 10, 10 12,000 years. Now it's 732 B.C. We know this particular portion of Scripture because it's often put on Christmas cards today. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. 
The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Strange Combination, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. So here we have the promise again. They're still waiting. They've been waiting for thousands of years. He's coming. He's coming. But it still hadn't happened. So here they are. The promise is being repeated again and again. And how many of you know that uh, the last book of the Bible, let me just ask you a little quiz here. What is the name of the last book of the Bible? I meant Old Testament. (laughs) Now you're not so sure, are you? It's Malachi, the Italian prophet. How many have read Malachi? (laughs) It's pronounced pronounced Malachi. (laughs) But it looks like Malachi. (laughs) And when you come to the book of Malachi, Malachi, the very last chapter of Malachi, chapter 4, the last three verses, what do you suppose he's talking about? He's coming. He's coming. The deliverer's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to really set things upside down. It's going to be big when he comes. And yet... It hasn't happened. Now, how many in here know how much time there was between the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament? How many want to give a guess? Yeah, the first service, they all knew it, every single one of them. (laughs) Someone down here knew it, though. 400 years. It's, it's, it's roughly 400 years. And let me tell you what happened. So, so here these promises keep coming. And I just gave you a few of them. They're all through the Old Testament. He's coming. He's coming. When he comes, it's going to be great. It's going to be good. It's going to be wonderful. He's going to set everything right. Everything's going to get fixed. He's coming. He's coming. 400 years now. Not a word. Nothing. Nothing. God doesn't speak at all. He doesn't give any revelation. He doesn't give any encouragement. 400 years. What's the longest you've ever waited for anything? Anybody in here ever waited 30 years for something? Just curious. Let me see your hands. Okay, 30 years. How about 20? Anybody waited 20 years for something? Okay. How about 10? Anybody waited 10 years for something? Okay. Five? Keep that 30 number in mind. It'll make more sense later on. So Israel's been waiting Since about 1450 B.C., they've been a nation. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting. But even before that, they were waiting. During their 1450-year history, let me just share this with you. About a 1,000 years of that time, they were under foreign domination. Now, this was not a good thing because the promise, the covenant, the agreement, what we call the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, part of it was this, that if they were faithful to God and represented him faithfully, then he would protect them from other nations. But if they were not faithful, he could not align himself with them so that he would let other nations overrun them. About a thousand years of their approximate 1,500-year history, they were overrun by other nations. First of all, the Assyrians overran the ten northern tribes. After the Assyrians came the Babylonians. After the Babylonians came the Persians. After the Persians came the Greeks. And after the Greeks came the Romans. And when you come down to what Paul initially said, at just the right time, it finally came. It was the Romans that were now dominating Israel. And the main thing that the Israelites of that first century wanted and believed that the Messiah, the Christ, would would do is he would finally put them again where they belonged, as they saw it, as the head of the nations. And Rome would no longer have any influence over them. They they were looking for a political solution. Some of us in here, God forbid this, but some of us in here are probably looking for a political solution to humanity's problems. And let me just share something to save you some grief. It's not going to happen. 
There is not going to be a political solution to humanity's problems until what we read in Isaiah, the government rests upon his shoulders. Until that time, governments are going to be what they've always been, imperfect, often corrupt, and not a few times deadly. And so Israel was waiting, and they're waiting, and it's not happening. And even at the the very end, it's still not happening. So then, all of a sudden, at just the right time, it happens. Let's pick up together now those Bibles that are near you on the chair, or if you have your own, turn to page 1157. If you've got your own, turn to Luke chapter 2. And let's just look at the event once again for ourselves. The first Christmas. Page 1157, it starts out. Now in those days, a decree went out from who? Caesar Augustus. Notice, a real historical figure. This is verifiable history. Now folks, while some of you are still trying to find your place, this is what distinguishes this book from every so-called holy book on the planet. The entirety of this book is recorded, God is interacting through verifiable human history. All the rest of the so-called religious writings of the world do not have that quality. There's many, many other qualities that distinguish this book as supernatural and truly put here by the true creator. But one is just this, it's, it's woven into verifiable human history. So it starts out, history. Now in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for what? Can't get away from them, ever. It doesn't matter when you're alive. This was the first registration taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Again, historical figures. Everyone went to his own town to be registered. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was of the house in the family line of David. Now, just to give you a little bit of geographical reference, it was about a 70-mile journey. Not a big deal if you're in one of our cars today. Big deal if you're walking or you maybe have a little donkey that you're riding on or something. Anyway, they make the 70-mile journey. Let's pick up in verse 8. Now there were shepherds nearby living out in the field, keeping guard of their flock at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were absolutely, what is the word? Terrified. The the sky lights up with entities. They they didn't know what they were seeing. They They were scared to death. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Listen carefully, for I proclaim to you good news that brings great joy to how many people? All the people. All the people. Today, your Savior, your Rescuer, your Savior is born in the city of David. He is Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer, but he's also what? The Lord. Now, you have to understand what this meant to a Jew hearing this. They're saying that this baby that's born, that's called the Savior, that's called the Christ, the Messiah, is also God. The the word Lord to a Jew was very distinct. And so here we have this combination. We had it all through the Old Testament that this this character seems to be human, seems to be divine. What, What is this going on? So here we have it. It's the Savior is Christ the Messiah, but he's also the Lord, which is divinity. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth 
and lying in a manger, that's a feeding trough, suddenly a vast heavenly army appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. When the angels left them and went back to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place that the Lord has made known to us. And we'll stop right there. We just, I just wanted to familiarize you a little bit with the details of the story because honestly today, um, it is not an unusual thing to find people that don't honestly know this is set in history and that it's a real occurrence. It was a, a real birth. Now, they had waited and waited and waited, and particularly the nation of Israel was, was just waiting for this to happen because in their minds, primarily it meant that they were going to be liberated from the Romans. But I want you to think about something. These shepherds were in Bethlehem, which was 70 miles from Nazareth, which was where Jesus would be raised. Do you suppose these shepherds would ever see Jesus again? 70 miles away. Their flocks are there in Bethlehem. They're not going to likely take their flocks 70 miles away to Nazareth. And it would be 30 years, 30 years before anything happened. I, I mean, we, we would like to think that when the announcement came, when the angels split the sky and they made this announcement about finally, finally he's arrived, the one we've been waiting for, he's arrived. And from that day on, the Romans became peace-loving and everybody was kind to one another and everyone loved one another and crime ceased and conflict ceased and war ceased and disease was no more and sickness and sorrow and pain and loneliness and anguish and guilt and shame, they all ceased when he came, when he was born into his creation that night. But that's not what happened. You know it. The birth came, the birth went, conflict went on, the Roman Empire went on, people fought in their homes, they fought in the streets, they fought wars with one another, people got sick, they died, people were lonely, people were guilty, people were full of shame, people were disease-ridden, life grinded on. And 30 years went by after this extraordinary occurrence and announcement, what we call Christmas. 30 years, nothing. They had waited for Christmas for thousands of years, what we call Christmas. And then when it happened, with all of its promise, nothing, nothing. I don't know that you've ever contemplated that. I asked you earlier, I said, how many have ever waited for 30 years for something? And there was at least one lady that said she had. They had to wait another 30 years. These same shepherds that experienced this, they wouldn't even hear anything likely of Jesus because his active ministry wouldn't start for another 30 years. The only thing we know is that one time he shows up in the temple when he's 12 years old and he amazes the, the theologians in the temple by his, his wisdom and his questioning. Other than that, we don't know anything. And so the waiting, the waiting went on. So that's the wait before Christmas. And the scripture kind of speaks to us differently because, you know, we're not waiting for Christmas and we have a better understanding because God's given his word to us. But this idea of waiting, it's something that God wants to have all of his people understand as a part of this process of human development, a part of life, a necessary part of life. You're going to wait. 
You're going to wait for a lot of things in your life, and I'm going to wait for a lot of things in your life. And I don't like waiting, and probably you don't either, but it's part of God's methodology for our development in this life. Listen to the psalmist. Psalm 130, verse 5, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I have put my hope. Man, that's a verse to pin your life on right there. My soul, or I will wait. I don't know about what you're doing. You could say to somebody, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to wait for the Lord, no matter how long. I'm going to wait for him. My soul waits, and in his word, in his promises in particular, I'm going to put my hope in there. Again, Lamentations. This is after the Israelite nation had been decimated by the Babylonians, and God is trying to encourage them and give them hope. It says, the Lord is good to those who do what? Who wait for him. Some of you, you're you're waiting for God right now. You've prayed for something, and you're reasonably sure it's within the boundaries of God's will. In fact, you've more than prayed. You've prayed repeatedly. Your heart has broken. You have wept in agony, waiting on this one thing. But it hasn't happened yet. The Lord's good. He's good to those who wait for him. To the person who does what? Seeks him. See, the thing about waiting is this, is waiting can make you bitter. Waiting can make you where you turn against God, get angry at God, mad at God. Or it can make you better if you seek him in the waiting. He's there for us in the waiting. He's with us in the waiting. But if we don't seek him, we don't know that he's with us in the waiting. It is good to wait quietly for deliverance from the Lord. So here's just affirmation about how waiting is something that God wants us to understand and accept. Once again, back to the psalm, David says this. He says, no one who waits for you will ever be what? And there's a way of saying that differently. David is saying, knowing by his own experience and knowing God the way that David knew God, he's saying, anybody that's waiting for God, you'll never be disappointed. You'll never be embarrassed. God will always ultimately come through. He will keep his word. You say, but Randy, the Israelites waited for thousands of years. Yes, they did. But God kept his word. Jesus, the Savior, finally did come. And so God kept his word. No one who waits for you will ever be put to shame or disappointed. But all who are unfaithful, those that won't trust God's promises, those that just refuse to acknowledge that God has a divine plan that he is working out, they will be. They will be put to shame. They will be disappointed is another way of putting it. So there's the waiting that went on before the first Christmas. And it's an interesting thing when you come to the New Testament, the Gospel of John. John describes this birth, this event very differently. He doesn't talk about the babe and born and and the census being taken. He, He just starts out right in the first chapter. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's all capitalized Word. And it says that the Word created the whole universe. And it says in John 1, 14, it says, the Word became flesh. That's how he describes the first Christmas. And he showed and he made his dwelling amongst us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten, full of, the fa- full of grace and truth from the Father. So John immediately points to the fact that Jesus is the creator of the universe. 
John points out the fact that when the Bible starts in Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God, it's talking about Jesus. It says that he's, in Luke, it says he's the Savior, he's the Christ, but he's also the Lord. He is the Creator, co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Spirit, mystery to us that don't have all of our lights turned on yet, but God has eternally existed in the Father, Son, and Spirit. They are three distinct personages in one being that make up the essence of God. But Jesus... All through scripture is spoken of as the creator of the universe. But yet, for 30 years, nothing happened. Now, we have the luxury of knowing that then he did live and demonstrate his power. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He opened blind eyes. He walked on water. He fed the hungry. He comforted the outcast. He forgave the sinful. He accepted freely. He showed that God is forgiving, that his arms are open wide to every human being, that there's nothing we can do, nothing, no sin we can commit that bars us from his love. He welcomed sinners back to himself. He demonstrated his trustworthiness in the life that he lived, the teaching that he taught and ultimately in the sacrificial death that he died. He went all the way to the cross, allowed human sin to mutilate him, to humiliate him, nail him to a cross, and he refused to use his power to defend himself, to demonstrate that he's the safest person in the universe, that he loves with a sacrificial love each and every one of us that sit in this room and each and every human he's ever created and each and every angel he's ever created. That his almighty power, far from something for us to fear and be intimidated by, it is something to draw us to him because the most powerful person in the universe is the safest person in the universe. He is the one that will never leave us and forsake us, never reject us. You cannot shock him. His love is unshockable. It's unstoppable. You don't have to hide anything from him. You don't ever have to fear that you stepped over some line and you are beyond his love and forgiveness. He's the most safe person in the universe. And we have the luxury now, being on this side of Christmas, to know all that. But when he came, it was a whole 30 years before they would have any idea of who he really was and what it was he came to accomplish. Now, we're now waiting on the other side of Christmas. And that's a different kind of a waiting, but we're still waiting The kingdom and all that Jesus will ultimately bring, it's not here yet. It's not here for us as well. Listen to these verses from Romans that makes us aware of this. It says in Romans 1.18, Paul writing to Christ followers in Rome, he says, What we are suffering now, do Christians suffer in this life according to this? Is it normal for a Christ follower to suffer now? Yes then why should we be so amazed? Why should we get angry at God? He's never promised us anywhere in his word that this life would not be difficult, never. What we are suffering now is nothing. God's telling us, he's saying, if you wait on me, if you wait on me, you're gonna see it's nothing. No matter how bad it feels right now, it's gonna be like nothing compared with our future glory. Everything God created looks forward to the future. That will be the, that will be the time when his children appear in their full final glory. That's talking about, folks, when all the light circuits are turned on in your mind and my mind, and you are given an immortal, resurrected body, a perfect body that will never again experience sickness, sorrow, pain, or death. It will live forever. It will be transformed in character to be like that of Jesus, and you will forever 
ever be somebody that were we to see you today, we would fall on our faces in shock and worship. You will be a being of brilliant, glorious light forever. And this passage is saying the sufferings of this life will be like nothing. But it goes on. So because our hope is set on what is yet to be seen, we don't have it yet. We don't see that glorious time. We patiently keep on what? Waiting Waiting for its fulfillment. They did a study in Houston Airport. They were having problems with the baggage claim area. People were sick of standing there waiting too long for their baggage. How many have ever been sick of waiting for your baggage at an airport? Okay, so you understand this. So they, they try to do various things and so they hired more baggage claim people and they got the time they got the wait down to a record of eight minutes record for any airport but people were still filing complaints galore about the waiting so they came up with what turned out to be a rather brilliant idea how many of you have ever been curious about why in the heck do we have to walk so far from when we get off the airplane to get our bags how many have ever wondered about it? I mean, you're like, you're like walking through the airport as fast, as fast as you can, and it still takes you eight, ten minutes if you time it. Well, here's what they found by research. The eight-minute wait was not the issue. It was not being occupied doing something that was the issue. So that's why they moved the baggage claim so far from when you get off the airport. Folks, while we're waiting on the other side of Christmas, we have a lot to be occupied with. The scripture's been revealed to us that that we're called in this life to learn to live in union with our creator Christ. It says we were made by him and for him, and we're to learn to trust in him in every area of our life. We're we're, We're called to learn to grow and cooperate with him, to become more like him. We're called, we're invited into his work on this earth. Jesus said, I'm building my church, and nothing will stop it. But then he tells us, he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and I'm with you I'm with you right there to the end of the age we're invited into this you talk about being occupied we have lots to occupy us while we wait and then we have this promise from Romans 8 it says we're confident that God is able to orchestrate everything to work towards something what good and beautiful when we what love him and accept his invitation to live according to his plan you've heard that verse in another way God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose this is another version the voice version that just puts it into a little bit more of a contemporary feel that's a lot more understandable I think I'm gonna read it to you again we're confident that God is able to orchestrate everything to work towards something good and beautiful when we love him that's the lens we look at him through and accept his invitation to live according to his plan that's the lens that we're looking at life through here's the thing we're all building something We're all building a character. We're all building a life. We're all building a legacy. We're all going to leave influence. Our life is going to stand for something or it's going to stand for nothing in some cases. And the question is, is are we 
united in waiting for God and occupied in building what he wants us to be building, which is primarily our own character to be like his. That will propel us to do the things that he wants us to do. Let me show you a picture of something. It's an astounding cathedral, the Cologne Cathedral. And it was started, you can see there, in 1248. It was completed in 1880, 632 years. Picture this. The people that worked on it decade after decade, century after century, they never saw it completed. They're diligently working. By the way, this thing is so spectacular that even with all the modern engineering we have today, it is very doubtful we could build this from scratch today. It took 632 years to make something beautiful, stunningly beautiful. Our God says to us, I want you to wait. I want you to wait because I want to do something beautiful in your life. And further, he says, I, I have two gifts that I want to give you this Christmas. God wants to give each and every one of us one or two gifts this Christmas. The gift that he's going to give to some of us, you mark this down. You remember this day that I said this. He's going to give to some of you the gift of a stunningly wonderful breakthrough. It's something you've been wanting. It's something you've been praying for. It's something you've been waiting for for a long time. He's going to give you that gift. I've watched that happen in people's lives. It's a beautiful thing. I've watched people wait for things sometimes 10, 15, 20 years, and then the breakthrough comes. It usually comes when they have given up on it altogether. They have forgotten about it. Some of you this year, God's gift to you, I promise you this, you, you watch, you remember this, this is going to be the year that a breakthrough of some sort by God is going to be given to you. But then there's a second gift that God's going to give the rest of us. We're all going to get one of these two gifts this year, I'm convinced. This second gift is one that it doesn't come wrapped so attractively. You, you may not be tempted to reach out and unpack it because it's a gift that is the gift of what I'm going to call holy and holy because it's orchestrated. We just were there, orchestrated by God for good. Holy discomfort. Holy discontent. You say, holy discomfort, holy discontent. Who wants that? Well, because it's holy. You see, the discomfort that God is going to allow in some of our lives, allow to go on, and it's not going to be really easy to deal with. If we allow it, it will throw us toward God. It will push us toward God. It'll bring, let me just share what it'll do. It'll bring you to a point where if you don't seek God, if you don't grab a hold of Jesus, if you don't live in intimacy with him, you will not survive it. You will come unglued. You will have a new capacity to connect with Jesus because of your discomfort, because of it that you don't have when things go well. How many of you know that sometimes we get things we want in life, but they tend to change our minds and attitudes and we drift further from God? They're good things, but they don't do us good. They don't do our soul good. How many would acknowledge that? Ironically, the things we don't want tend, they don't always, they tend to draw us toward God. We, we need a new definition of, a definition of what's good and what's bad. Whatever draws me toward God is good. Whatever pulls me away from God is not good, even though it may look good. You see, these circumstances, this is holy discomfort. It's either going to make you bitter or it's going to make you better. 
If you draw close to God, you're, you're going to find a relationship with God that you didn't know was possible. It's going to change you. It's going to change everybody that knows you. It's going to change the trajectory of your life. And you will be so glad someday when the wait is over that God gave you the gift of holy discomfort. He's going to give you also, some of you, the gift of holy discontent. Here's what holy discontent means. It's this thing that I've been feeling now in the last 10 years of my life much more intensely. This is not the place that God intends. I'm tired of the conflict. I'm tired of the hatred. I'm tired of the war. I'm tired of the crime. I'm tired of the violence. I'm tired of the cruelty. I'm tired of people living in fear. I could go on and on. I hate disease. I hate sickness. I'm tired of it. I hate death. And I want something that only Christ can bring when he comes in his fullness. I have a holy discontent and it makes me hunger and thirst for righteousness and work much harder for him and his kingdom to reconcile as many others back to him in the little bit of time that I have left on this earth. And he's gonna give that gift to some of you. Can you receive that? We could be allowing God to build a beautiful cathedral of our lives but we don't have to. If you don't want to wait on God, we can build this. This doesn't take much time or effort. In fact, to build this out of your life, all you got to do is say, I'm going to be who I want to be, do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Nobody's going to tell me what to do, not even God. I don't care about anybody, anything but myself. I'm going to fill my bucket list. I'm going to get all I can out of life. I'm only going around once. And that's what your life looks like in the sight of God. And that's what your soul will look like. But it's better to wait. It's better to wait and it's better to walk with God and it's better to work for God while we still have the time and the ability to do it. That's Psalm 130. I want to share it with you as I close. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word, I have put my hope. I hope that every single one of you, I can't make you do this, but if I could, I would. I hope that every single one of you will go out of here with that verse as your life verse. That you make up your mind, I'm going to wait on God. And I'm going to hope in his word. That's going to be where my hope is going to be. And I'm going to follow him fully, freely, and forever until his kingdom comes and his will is done on this earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, may your spirit help us to receive all the gifts you give us with open hearts and minds. And may we embrace this necessary developmental pattern that you've put in play, this process of waiting. May we, may we just embrace it as a gift of your love. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.